All right. Dog, we're doing this. The recording is started. All right. Yeah. Welcome to the uh, PR and Law Podcast, and this is episode one, and we're not even really sure what we're doing yet, uh, but I think before we <laughs> before we do anything, we should probably introduce ourselves, because people are going to have no idea who we are, or why why we should be, why our opinions are worth anything. Uh, so Ewan, why don't you go first? Well, I, f- first of all, I, I, I appreciate the broad and gargantuan disclaimer right off the top. I think that's probably the best way to start. Um, my name is Ewan Christie. I'm a founding partner at Duntroon LLP, which is an employment law boutique firm in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, I've practiced law for just over 10 years. And um, yeah, that, that would be me. Who are you, Cam? Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, I should mention that you and I do have these conversations uh, once a week, and it was born out of a out of a previous project that we had worked on many, many years ago. Um, but but sort of as we've grown, yeah, we've sort of ended up in these positions where Ewan's working in law, and I'm working in communications. Um, right now, I'm with a large internet company. Uh, I'm I'm based in Hong Kong, where I've been for the last, geez, like 12, 13 years now, so quite a long time. Um, wow. But it turns out that a lot of the things that we discuss are actually quite pertinent or quite could be quite useful to people um, who are finding themselves in certain situations, particularly now with the way COVID-19 is impacting everything all around the world and causing all kinds of destruction and probably uh, outcomes that we cannot even begin to imagine at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> to, put, to put it mildly. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think uh, the biggest news, Ewan, from last week, which was shocking, is the six million jobs lost in the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that was the third week in a row where there were that many jobs lost. And I remember the expectation was three million or four million. And I mean, this is, we're nowhere near the end of this thing yet. And look at the damage. I think it's 19 million people have already lost their jobs in the U.S., yeah, I mean, the, the, the numbers I saw uh, said it's approximately 11% of the total U.S. labor force, which is astounding. And that's those are the numbers just over three weeks. Yeah. Um, so why is the stock market doing so well? <laughs> good question. Uh, good question. But then again, the volatility that we've seen, it may be doing well today. Who knows where we'll be on uh, come, come Monday morning. Yeah, yeah. I suspect that it... Uh it is going to have a lot more volatility. I actually did get in last week because there were, I think I mentioned to you, there were some incredible deals on, you know, companies like Shopify. I think it was down to 320 something. And I said, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's going to go to 420 something. Like it's a, it's a sure bet. And it had done that by Tuesday. I mean, it was, it was well, 48 hours later. It had already happened. Well, you, you know, you sort of, you raise a good point there. I mean, how would you advise someone, though, in terms of the when to jump into something like that? Because, you know, I see those numbers as well. And what's terrifying to me is we still don't know where the bottom is. We still don't know where the market's going to turn in any 24-hour period. So how do you know? I mean, and I guess you never really know with any certainty, but how can you at least try and make an educated guess in terms of, hey, now's the time. I think now's the time to buy in. Yeah. Well, first off, I th- we are not offering investment advice on this show. Uh, so, so, <laughs> no, I so, know, so, yeah. I know. <laughs> uh, take everything we say with a, a big grain of salt. But I think... Um, 
I mean, my advice to anybody here after I say I'm not going to give advice is not to not to get in this market at all. I mean, it is too volatile. I think there's going to be a lot more damage than the market's anticipating. That's my feeling. Um, I, you know, sometimes I'm a bit of a risk taker. And so, I mean, you're seeing it go up and down a lot. And when it's low, I mean, we've talked about this before. You can never time the market. You can't buy at the low and you cannot sell at the high. Like it's literally impossible. So... I mean, basically, my own rule of thumb is look for good value. And if you see a stock that was 200 or $300 more expensive, you know, before this began, you know, has the company fallen that far just because of COVID? You know, is it going to recover? Is it well positioned? Are the fundamentals good? And if so, you can hop in at that price and it might continue mm -hmm. to go down, but you're not buying it to sell this week or next week or the week after that. You're buying it because you know it's a good company and it's going to come back a long way over time. And that's really the only way mm -hmm. you can look at it. But I do think that there are people who will end up making a lot of money out of this crisis because that always happens. We saw that in 2008 and 2003 and the Asian financial crisis and, you know, all of those, all of those sort of market crashes, you know, there were, there were people that had money on the sidelines and jumped in and really sort of did very well. You can set yourself up for life if you, if you have resources at a time like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really interested to see how property markets are going to are, are are going to figure this thing out. I mean, I've read just a number of stories across across well, across Canada, across the United States, particularly people who who really got caught in sort of the worst sort of timing situation you could imagine, whereby they sold their home, you know, immediately prior um, to the pandemic, or at least purchased a home immediately prior to to things breaking out, and now they're stuck, um, unable to to sell their home, so they're effectively carrying two mortgages. On two separate properties, the value of the you know of the home that they had prior to the pandemic has effectively tanked, and there are no purchasers out there to buy anything. Um, I, I really, really feel for a lot of these people. I mean, these all they've also lost their jobs. So we've got the labor situation, two mortgages. I, I, I just don't know where things go for a lot of these families, and a lot of them are middle class, working class families, whatever that means anymore in this in this context. But it's really, really disconcerting. Yeah, it's. I mean, this goes back to just saying there's going to be a lot more damage out of this, and I think people are anticipating even at this point even with you know 10% of the US uh, uh, workforce basically gone uh, I mean you're talking about the property market I mean here in Hong Kong as you know I mean we we own an apartment in Hong Kong but we have decided to move into a larger one um, you know to rent uh, but but, mm -hmm. but since COVID happened I mean we sort of moved right at the start and um, you know we're unable to rent out our, our previous place so I mean there's a mortgage on that that we're looking after every month because you know, right now, especially in Hong Kong, I mean, there are people out. Um, I mean, the streets are still fairly crowded. Um, we talked about it before, the fact that, you know, it's basically 100% of people here wearing masks, and that really helps reduce the the human-to-human trans -human transmission. Um, but then you combine COVID with, you know, the protests that we saw here last year. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's just, there's not a lot of people around the world making plans to move to Hong Kong at the moment. Um, you know, or people moving within the city just because of potential economic hardship, you know, coming, coming soon. Well, that's a good question. I mean, how has the, the, the protest movement dealt with all this or approached all this? Is it, is it effectively just gone dormant? Yeah. In the early days, there were still some protests because there were, um, you know, the, the Hong Kong government had selected certain 
certain venues as COVID-19 sort of temporary hospitals. And they were in very Mm. heavily populated areas with like elderly homes and things like that. So there were a lot of people on the street about that. But since it's, you know, it's gotten more and more serious, um, you know, there hasn't been much in the way of protest uh, in the last couple of months. I think it will return because obviously the problems that, that fed those protests last year have not been resolved at all. Um, so, so, mm. so that will, I do anticipate that it will, it will return. Hmm. Okay. You know, on the issue of masks, I mean, we saw <laughs> yesterday in Hong Kong, we, we were down to 11 new cases in one day. That's how low we've brought it. And I mean, the, wow. I mean, the cases are still increasing and we went up by 11 yesterday, but we've severely halted the, the transmission locally. And I mean, that's a lot of a lot of effort goes into that. I mean, our borders are basically closed. You know, we're seeing a few thousand people enter Hong Kong, um, you know, in a day, which is 98 or 99% um, of the the regular traffic has disappeared. Um, So that has helped. Um, But, you know, we had a phase two of it here. Like we, obviously when this erupted in in China in December and early January, um, there was a lot of concern and there were some cases, but with everyone putting masks on right away, it was kind of nipped in the bud pretty, pretty early. Uh, and we had gone back to work even. Um, but then, you know, as the cases multiplied in Europe and the U.S., uh, the, the, we had a problem with imported cases. And so now, you know, we, it was sending everybody back home again, and we sort of buckled down for round two. But it looks like even that now, we're sort of getting over that hump a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I remember you and I talking about this a few weeks ago, and uh, it, it was really, it, it was really sort of encouraging from, from, from my perspective, because you're saying, oh, yeah, no, everybody's back to work, and you know, it's it's sort of a return to normalcy, and I thought, okay, so effectively, that's what about a six to to eight week timetable that's 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 doable I, I i can handle that and i was sort of looking at that as kind of a benchmark in terms of um what we'd be looking at here and then of course very very quickly uh that turned out to be not the case and when you had first told me oh no no we're, we're now getting hit with a second wave largely because of you know the reverberation of all of the individuals that were sort of coming back to hong kong or coming in to your market from from ours from north america or from europe and and a new round of of infection rates and i thought that was when i think it really really sunk in for me that you know this is this is not going to just disappear in a matter of months that there are going to be in fact waves of waves of waves and it's going to be very very difficult um, to try and control that and even to anticipate where the waves are going to be coming from geographically because of course you know as a, as, as a global community and world travel we're all so interconnected and I, I just uh, it, it's terrifying it's yeah. ter- I think in, in, in short it's terrifying mm-hmm. yeah yeah for sure I mean but we can't sort of overstate the value of masks and this has been an issue and I've actually I've written a long piece on this I have not published it yet but I will put it in the show notes uh, once it's live um, just on the general aversion to masks it seems like in in, in mm. especially the United States and Canada but Europe too to some degree you know and just going into like where where does this resistance come from because I know Early on, you know, the U.S. CDC and, uh, you know, the president and and many others said, look, the, the masks aren't going to help you. They're not going to prevent, you know, you, you contracting COVID-19. Um, they don't work, basically. 
which always seemed mm-hmm. dubious to me because then why are doctors and nurses wearing them in the hospital if they don't work? So, I mean, clearly there's got to be some value there. Um, but I mean, it was, people trotted out that those, those sort of officials or those experts really quickly and frequently to explain why they were just not going to wear a mask and they don't work and it's just something that doesn't apply to them. And I mean, I might be reading too much into it, but it does feel like more than just rebellion. It does feel like maybe that this is masks or something, you know, that North Americans don't do. It's just something that doesn't apply to them. Um, I don't know if there's a bit of entitlement that I sensed in there or, I mean, I I don't want to go as hard as say racism because I think it's a strong term. But I think, um, Mm. you know, just a sense that this this is something that other people in other parts of the world need to worry about. It's something they do. We don't have to do that. And I think we're seeing the results of that today in New York City. Yeah. You know, I I, I don't think... I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that there are some some cultural explanations to what's going on here, um, at least in some a very, very broad sense. Um, I, I've had a number of people approach me um, going back to when this COVID sort of first broke out here in the early instances of a small minority of, in, uh, of people here wearing masks. And generally speaking, the individuals wearing masks were all of some Asian ancestry. And I had a number of people ask me, well, you know, why are they walking around um, wearing, wearing these masks? Well, you know, I'm not going to infect them. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm okay. But of course, you know, the, the origin of that has nothing to do with a concern that those individuals are going to infect you. It's actually quite the opposite. The the idea being that I'm wearing a mask to protect you from me possibly infecting you, that I'm doing this as a, as a gracious show of respect for, for you and for, for the rest of my community. And I think that that, that is sort of a cultural shift that needs to sort of occur here to recognize that, no, no, it's not just about you and you very well may be fine walking out on the street. This is about you trying to protect your community and take care of your community, particularly in densely populated urban centers. And I think, you know, there's a certain responsibility that people have to try and and get behind. If you choose to live in a densely populated urban center, then your own sense of personal individual freedom inevitably is going to be subject to some level of restriction because you have chosen to live in a densely populated urban center where there are so many others in your immediate vicinity. Your personal bubble of space is significantly smaller. And if that's something that's very, very important to you to have a larger bubble or to not have to have other, you know, that that majority um, protected, then, you know, pick up and move, <laughs> go to a rural center, particularly in a country like Canada. I mean, my, my goodness, go, go live in the prairies, go live in the country, you know, purchase your, your three or four acres and live in complete isolation and do whatever the heck you want. But if you are going to live in a densely populated urban center, then you have to be more conscious and more respectful of that community around you. And I think we, we just haven't seen people conscious of these issues. Yeah, you know, you, you said something at the very start of that uh, answer that was prescient to me, which is you said, you know, you may be okay, you may be healthy and go out into the community. And that's true, but I don't know you're healthy, right? I mean, you, you, you're exactly. fine and you go out there and I, I see you not wearing a mask and we're in the middle of a pandemic and I think, 
how am I supposed to know that you're sort of following the rules or looking after yourself or who have you been in contact with? Have you just traveled somewhere? You know, it's, it's to give people around you an assurance that you're taking it seriously and you're looking out for other people. And, you know, this outbreak in Wuhan, uh, I think we've both been there. I'm not sure if you've been there. Um, but I mean, it's, it's not that far from Hong Kong. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think Hong Kong people are trained to sort of not trust the Chinese government. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, as soon as word leaked out that there was, you know, a serious problem with this sort of SARS kind of virus that, you know, it was masks on for everybody right away. And, right. Um, right. you know, we only just hit 1,000 uh, cases of, of COVID-19. Uh, you know, this is a city of 7.5 million people. And we're part of China and been dealing with it for a long time. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, I mean, we've got far fewer cases than places like Belgium. Um, so I, I, I think that there, just the fact that everyone's wearing masks really helps. You know, I see the pictures and I talk to people in BC in Canada who say, you know, you've got to line up to go into a supermarket and you've got to stay, you know, whatever, six feet behind the person in front of you in line. And they take a certain number of people into a supermarket at a time to ensure the distancing. Like none of that would be necessary if people wore masks. Because, like, none of that's happening here. If you know everyone's wearing a mask, you can go into a crowded supermarket. You can walk around. You can bump into people. Um, I mean, the, the risks are just so much more reduced. If, if, if those sort of fluids or, you know, they're talking about little microbes that are, that are released from the nose and mouth if you're covered up. Hmm. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I, I, my understanding, I mean, and, and again, I don't profess to be a medical expert by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, my understanding is that th- there obviously is a great deal of value to the social distancing. Staying, you know, keeping apart from one another is probably, you know, is one of the greatest things that we can do to sort of curb uh, the infection rates, that and of course, washing hands. So, I, I mean, but I mean, shouldn't there ideally be some combination of the two? I mean, yes. clearly we need to be wearing more masks, but I mean, the social distancing i think is critical as well from at least from from what i've read yeah and one example is you know going out for dinner or something if you're going into a restaurant i mean you have to take your mask off to eat or to drink yeah. so i mean there there you're in a situation where yeah I, I think you see in hong kong in restaurants like the tables are spaced out um so that's where mm-hmm. social distancing is enforced because that's a place you have to take off your mask um, but in places well, where they're it, on that... it's okay but that's interesting. So you can still in Hong Kong, you can still go to a restaurant and sit down and have a meal. Correct. Yes. Huh. Okay. I mean, okay. Th- there would be some restaurants that are have closed down, you know, out of out of caution. And there's some. I mean, for instance, it's not a restaurant, but we have Marks and Spencer food here, right? And they, mm-hmm. um, you know, a couple of their cashiers ended up testing positive, so they closed down. Um, all of their all of their outlets for a few days. I think they're going to keep the two shops that actually had the two or three shops that had the employee. I think that's closed sort of indefinitely. Those shops, um, but the mm. other ones sort of went through a deep clean as a precaution. So you are seeing mm. you know places closed down, and we did have sort of strict instructions to close down bars because there was a, a as part of that second wave we had. Um, Actually, you and you're familiar with it. In Lang Kwai Fong, we've got this bar, Insomnia, which I, we've been into many times over mm-hmm. the years. But, you know, one of their, uh, one of their, one of, in, the, in the Filipino band that plays there, uh, a couple of the musicians tested positive. And, you know, to talk about the power of the transmission of this virus, I mean, there were tons of people that ended up testing positive who were in that bar. And, of course, these bands sort of circulate around to, um, you know, sister bars uh, under the same ownership group in Hong Kong. So, you know, they went to Wan Chai and performed at, um, I think it's all night long or 
Dusk Till Dawn. Yeah, Dusk Till Dawn it's called. Anyway, there's three of them. And of course, you know, people got infected. There were a lot of infections out of that. Um, so bars mm. closed down. I mean, that was one thing that was was shut. Um, but restaurants are still around if you want to dine. But there's, I mean, most people are, are staying in. But I mean, Hong Kong, it's so dense. It's such a small space. And there's so many people here. So, I mean, the streets are not empty. It's not tumbleweeds when you're going out there. You will see, you know, lots of people out doing something. Um, but they're all wearing masks, which is important. Wow. Isn't it interesting? Because, I mean, we still have, I mean, you're starting to see more and more people wearing masks, um, wearing masks here, finally. Um, Can you get them there? Though? We, we, I had a lot of people tell me that they're just not available. Well, they aren't. It, I mean, it's been really, really difficult to find them, for sure. Um, we, there's been a lot of really interesting posts in social media and Twitter, um, Pinterest of, hey, make, you know, design make your own mask um you know i mean i know i mean i know jill my wife she we had to go out and get some groceries yesterday and we haven't been able to find masks we haven't been able to get them and you know we've effectively made them out of out of bandanas which of course is it's not a a proper surgical mask by any stretch of the imagination but it's it's better it than nothing yeah, so uh, that that's what we've we've had to do and you've certainly seen all kinds of interesting and often hilarious examples of, of homemade protective gear um wandering out wandering out on the streets um what what has been really really cool what i've what i've found to be really encouraging is you know apart from uh the, the individuals who have have sort of taken exception to well i'm not going to wear a mask and hey i'm going to continue to live my life the way that i've lived my life the vast majority of people um you know in in downtown toronto where i live have been very very gracious and respectful of what's going on so even when you see people walking down the street they're very very conscious of not passing within close proximity to you on the sidewalk people will walk out into the street to make sure that you're given space or they will cross the street um just a, a general consciousness of what's going on and an awareness that's really encouraging to see um but I mean, our, our approach has been very, 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 very different in, in that because there have been no masks, the masks has, hasn't been part of the equation for the most part here. It's it, the message has been social distancing, social distancing. So the majority of our establishments are closed, all non-essential services, um, any front frontline staff obviously continue to have to go to work and notably in the healthcare profession but other than that i mean if you're a restaurant for example or a bar um you are closed you you know you're allowed to sort of um there, there's takeout that's available and delivery services there are no sit down restaurant spaces that are permitted to be open frankly in the province of ontario um so it's interesting the different sort of extreme measures that are taken in the different environments. You're talking about Hong Kong where everybody's wearing masks, but they're still sort of out and about. Here, nobody's wearing masks, but nobody's really out and about either. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, it is a mix. I think you said early on that it's sort of got to be both. And um, I mean, I, I, I want to be clear. There are restaurants here that are closed and there's services that are mm -hmm. closed. I mean, there's, I mean, sort of massage parlors and, um, you know, those kind of places are closed down. Um, but there are still places open if you do want to go 
grab a bite somewhere. And when I say restaurant, I sort of mean, you know, the Tsuiwa kind of places or Cha Tan Tang. And I think not everyone mm-hmm. listening to this will be familiar with what that is, but they're yeah. sort of Hong Kong style fast food, but they're, you know, you, you, you go down, you sit in there, they're pretty cheap and they serve you noodles really quickly kind of thing. Um, a lot of those places you can still go in and get a hot bowl of noodles or something like that. But I don't think there's almost nobody's going to a banquet for instance. And, you know, it came up right. the other day that the restaurants that are getting hit the hardest are the more upscale Chinese restaurants where you would normally go for, you know, a big work dinner or, you know, with colleagues or, you know, a wedding or, you know, something, a, a banquet style event. And those places just have zero business as a result of the social distancing, because there's not groups like that that are that are out there. Mm-hmm. You know, we are requested to have, I think it's four people or fewer um, at, at any one gathering. So that's sort of the, the limit yeah, and I think we're we're sort of at a comparable something comparable to that here as well. I mean, what what about the generational? Do you think there's any sort of generation divide here, Cam, in terms of being respectful and supportive of measures such as social distancing and wearing a mask? Um, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, it was so. I mean, over here, um, and again, I know our listeners won't all be familiar with Hong Kong, but I mean, there is a, I mean, this is a, I think Chinese culture generally is very respectful of elders, for instance, uh, and family mm-hmm. and authority, you know, teachers, things like that. And I think, um, you know, when there's an instruction to do something, the instinct is to to do it, that, that this is something that you know, somebody with some level of authority or someone with certain credentials or education or knowledge is asking us to do, then we we should follow through. And it's not just on something like this, but, you know, almost anything. Um, It's that kind of a society. So, I mean, for instance, we have, you know, zero graffiti here, for instance, we've got very low crime rates, um, things like that. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a respectful sort of culture in general. And so, you know, I haven't seen any divide between, older people and younger people here because everybody understands that it's, I mean, you know, one thing I haven't talked about here is SARS. I mean, SARS did start in Guangzhou and Hong Kong. And um, so, you know, people here lived through that and that was a very scary time in 2003. Mm-hmm. And, and that's an important lesson. And I think that's something that, you know, the U S and Canada haven't gone through. Um, and that helped, I think the city respond much better this time because, you know, we know the drill, we know what we're supposed to do. We know how this works. And so the, the reaction was much faster. And I think that does go across, you know, different age groups and generations. And I think probably next time this happens, hopefully not in our lifetime, hope it's at least another hundred years, but um, I, I bet the response will be faster in, in North America as well. Well, I, I, hey, I hope you're right. Um, of course, you know, Toronto in particular, it, it did experience SARS. You know, as you may recall, there was that, you know, really, really famous concert with uh, the Rolling Stones and Justin Timberlake. It was a big, big um, benefit concert in downtown Toronto because the city was effectively shut down as a result of SARS. I remember I was living in Montreal at the time and perhaps foolishly now in retrospect, but I thought my, my girlfriend and I who were poor students thought, hey, let's go to Toronto for the weekend. Everything's shut down. We'll probably be able to have a really, really cheap vacation. And I remember we stayed at, you know, the uh, the Fairmont Royal York, which is one of the nicest hotels in the city. And I think we paid, you know, $50 or something absolutely ridiculous to stay there because the city was effectively shut down. But one thing I've been hearing a lot about was 
when when there was the initial outbreak in China, there was a lot of talk in in Toronto about oh no no hey we've we've been through this before we went through this with SARS you know we're not going to get caught again um, we're going to be prepared this time and frankly much of the evidence. Um, suggests otherwise um, I mean I think I, I think the province has done a, a good job and eventually stepped up and the city stepped up um, but there was still that initial delay um, that sort of suggests that we we really didn't learn what we needed to learn or, or take away from from SARS uh, and and that that's concerning to me because when I sort of look at you know a city like Hong Kong or the or the response and you know uh, Taiwan, for example, they they have been prepared in a way that I feel we should have been prepared for, and and um, that I, I don't I don't know what the explanation is there, but there's clearly a, a very very differing and a very very different approach that was taken here relative to what was taken there. Mm-hmm. I do think that this is much more. I mean, this is much bigger than SARS was for for. Canada and the United States. I mean, SARS Absolutely. here, I mean, there were a lot of people that died of SARS in Hong Kong. And I think, you know, one of the estates, I mean, there were people who knew people in very dire situations at that time. And I think, you know, it was, people here were intimately aware of it and, you know, knew people who died of it or were sick of it. Um, and I, I, I mean, I do remember SARS, uh, you know, Vancouver uh, at the time, but it, it wasn't, it was, it was something people were worried about, but it wasn't at the same degree it is today with um, mm-hmm. COVID-19. So, it, you know, you could be right. Maybe we missed a chance to, to learn something, but I, I do feel like this one is much bigger than SARS was globally. As scary as absolutely. SARS was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm looking at the death counts here, by the way. So as of the latest numbers up, you know, updated at the time of recording, you know, Hong Kong has four. And I mean, this is a city with a lot of elderly people. Like we have sort of a Japan style demographic problem. So it's quite low. Um, and, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's surprising, you know, some of the countries that ended up with a lot. I mean, Germany's had almost 3000 deaths, Germany, France, mm-hmm. 14,000 in France have died. Um, you know, almost five, well, 4,474 in Iran, Turkey, over a thousand, uh, Belgium, three thousand three hundred. I mean, these are these are high numbers. Um, yeah. And, and by the way, I'm not trying to. You know, I sound like I'm a big uh, Hong Kong shill here on this. Um, I, you know, I do feel good that the city responded well, and it is a group of. It's a collective effort, but um, you know, it hasn't been perfect either. And, I, and and some of these other cities don't. I mean, there there are benefits when everyone is in a small enclosed space like this too i mean communication gets out quickly everyone can respond quickly everyone has easy access to information um you know i've said before it's almost like the city is a big family like if there's a news item that happens everyone knows instantly it's very plugged in and i think um you know all of that are are factors that are sort of unique to here perhaps i mean south korea has done well too considering they've had ten thousand. well right now they have ten thousand cases but they've had 200 deaths you know which is quite 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 low compared to the, you know, the outbreak that they had there and how serious it was. That's, that's incredible. Anyway, I don't want to go on and on about this. We do want to, uh, we do want to get to some, at least some nugget of substance we can take away uh, (laughs) from this podcast. Well, one of them for sure is wear a mask. Please wear a mask. If you're going out, not for you, don't do it for you, but put a mask on so other people know that, you know, they can, 
They're not going to catch anything if they bump into you or, you know, walk past you uh, on the sidewalk. Um, well, would this be a good time to chime in with a, uh, a shout out to, to Larry's website? For, for those individuals who might be looking for more information on this subject. Please do. Please do, Ewan. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm just trying to say, how do we how do we say it without actually saying it? Well, this is like HBO, <laughs> so go ahead. There's no there's no ban on foul language on this show. Plug, okay. play, yeah, so take your kids I, I, out of the room, everybody. <laughs> yes. So um, there, there is a, and, I, and correct me if I've got the URL wrong, Cam, but I believe uh, it is uh, wear a fucking mask dot com is that right www.wearafuckingmask.com um it, it has some some very useful information um if you are questioning whether or not you should wear a mask the answer is very very simple you should um and this website will provide some some very insightful evidence and statistics as to why you should um in a in a colorful and humorous fashion Yes, it is. A, you know, the guy who made the website is a very good friend of ours, and um, he made the site in a couple of hours because he got it was right at the time the second wave was happening in Hong Kong, and people were flying into the city, and you know they were kind of escaping. Like at first, there were a lot of people here who were really worried about the virus, so they they fled to Europe or the UK or the US, and then when it started getting bad there, they flew back here. And brought the virus with them, basically. And a lot of people were not wearing masks at the time. And Larry got very fed up with it. And so he created this website. I do recommend it. Check it out. It's it's not a you know, it's not a huge website. It's basically one page, but it's well sourced. There's links there, there's really practical things. It should end any debate over some of these issues. Uh, and he just lays it out very, very plain to read. It's 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 good and it works. And he's gotten a lot of attention because of that website. Yeah, deservedly so. Um, I did want to ask you, and just because you're you are involved in in labor law, uh, I mean, we're mm-hmm. seeing these we're seeing these layoffs in the United States. I think it's going to get a lot worse there, and I think it's going to be bad in many countries. In fact, I mean, China has taken a significant hit to their economy as well. Um, what advice would you have for someone who gets laid off? Um, we just had in Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government just introduced a policy whereby if companies agree not to not to let somebody go during this crisis, the government will help pay for their salary. And I need to look at the exact amount, but it's quite a high amount of, of, the, of the employee's salary. Um, mm-hmm. but, but what, you know, what is happening from your view and you know what obviously not a specific case but you know what advice would you have if somebody's running into problems and um you know they're they're on the bubble and are fearing for for what the future might hold great great question um when this i mean when this whole thing exploded over here um you know our firm we were just bombarded with calls from employers and employees we, we we represent both sides of the fence and you know all of the questions were very similar along the lines of what do i do what do i do for employers it was dear god we have to shut down um what do we do can we can we lay off our employees we, we you know we have no money coming in we can't afford to pay all of these people and then of course from the employee's perspective it was you know I, my my employer is t- telling me I'm, I'm going to be laid off. Can they do that? And I mean, just given the unprecedented nature of the situation, it was very, very difficult to give clear and sound advice because effectively we've never, we've just never dealt with anything like this before. There is no precedent. There is no specific case.
case law we can point to and say, well, you know, um, we have this judicial precedent that says this is how we deal with this. So we are effectively um, as 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 frightening and terrifying as it is to sort of state this openly and publicly. We were we we're effectively trying to make it up as we went along and and provide information in terms of best guesses where we think the courts might go, where we think the law might go, where we think the governments might go. And the the big move for most employers was temporary layoffs, and. The temporary layoff is sort of a mechanism that typically is reserved for those employees that have a provision in their employment agreement that specifically permits the employer to temporarily lay them off. So, I mean, you know, the most obvious examples are seasonal workers. If you work in an industry where, you know, you're only actually active a few months of the year, you can have a temporary layoff provision built into the contract that allows the employer to temporarily lay you off and then recall you once work picks back up again. How but common, how common that, is a clause sorry? like that, though? How common is a clause like that written into not, a contract? Not, not very. It's not common at all. Mm-hmm. Not common at all. And the law is very, very clear, at, you know, at least in the province of Ontario, the temporary layoff provisions, at least across Canada, are, are, are different depending on what province you look at. But, you know, generally speaking, unless you have clear language in in the contract that permits a temporary layoff, it's against the law to temporarily temporarily lay off an employee. Um, but of course, in in a situation like this, you know, the advice that 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 we were giving employees and we're giving employers was that, you know, what given the unprecedented nature of this, yeah, you can probably follow the temporary layoff provisions, as if all of the agreements did have those particular clauses written into them because frankly there's no logical alternative and that's where you know at a certain point you don't need to be a lawyer to understand um, how this plays out from a common sense perspective if every employer across the country and frankly across north america across europe across asia across asia if they were permitted to be sued by every employee who is temporarily laid off right now i mean every every employer or the vast majority of them would just go completely broke so the likelihood that any court would take the position that a temporary layoff given these circumstances is is you know a legal or a breach of any you know particular relevant employment statute it just doesn't make sense so and that's effectively what's happened across the country and the governments have reacted pretty quickly provincially and then and then also federally to to try and adapt and create an environment where employers can temporarily lay off their employees um, and ride out the storm so that they can stay afloat and in terms of the government's response, they've taken a similar approach to what it sounds like they're, they're doing over there. They've effectively said, okay, employers, it's important and critically important, in fact, that you keep as many employees working as you can. And I mean, that just makes good economic sense. If people have income, they're going to continue to spend money. If they're spending money, that keeps other people employed and effectively keeps the whole system afloat. So the federal government stepped in and said, you know what, we're prepared to pick up, and I and I believe it's 70 or 75% of an employee's salary up to, I think it's about 57 or $58,000 a year. We'll pick up that percentage of the tab provided you continue to pay them and keep them at work. And, 
you know, it, it, the legislation is so new. We don't really know how it's going mm-hmm. to how it's going to play out, um, what the long term economic consequences are going to be. But I think it, it was a really bold move by the federal government to try and prop up the economy in, a, in, in, in effect the only way that we possibly can right now, which is to try and keep as many people working as we can. Yeah, you know, this is so difficult because, I mean, the government is stepping in, and I think this is happening in a lot of places, um, but, but for how long? Because this may not be, you know, a month or two months. I mean, there could be economic implications from this that go on for the rest of the year or into next year. And how long can yeah. governments continue supporting businesses um, you know, as this drags on, because the government, the, the, I mean, uh, governments are going to see their own income hit via via tax revenues and things like that. There's going to be less money to go around. So it is going to be interesting to see sort of over the longer term how this how this is maintained. Um, but the other one, I yeah. mean, sorry, go ahead, Ewan. No, well, I, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a really, really good point. And again, the long-term consequences—it's so—it's so so hard to sort of try and and piece it together without um, just coming to these doom and gloom sort of scenarios and and outcomes, because you know at at a certain point, and and the longer this drags on, the more this becomes a reality. Inevitably, employers, when things do get back to normal they're going to have there's going to be mass layoffs i mean it's just an inevitability that when these companies start back up um and they're looking at their overhead and they're looking at their their pool of employees that they will not be in a position to keep everybody and undoubtedly they will have to start laying people off but then that's going to trigger a, a further economic consequence because as soon as they start terminating these individuals a number of these individuals will be able to turn around and 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 sue those companies for wrongful dismissal alleging that they weren't provided you know adequate severance pay or termination assuming that they're in a jurisdiction where they have that entitlement um and suing their employers for more money well a lot of these employers frankly will not be in a position to pay them more money so Yes, the employee will have an entitlement. You know, it could be a situation where, you know, an employee comes to see see me and says, hey, I've been terminated by my employer. Um, Here are my circumstances. I've been with the company for 30 years and I'm 62 years old, you know, and and my explanation to them or or assessment might be, well, I think you're entitled to to 24-month severance pay. And they've only been paid perhaps, you know, nine or 10 months. So, you know, you've got a, a significant shortfall there. But again, if the employer is not in a financial position to pay every long-term employee they've had to lay off given the circumstances, then what happens? That employee has a legal entitlement to that to that shortfall. But again, if the employer is going to go bankrupt, <laughs> then what you know what what good is that? So I think there's going to be a significant level of compromise on both sides of the fence, and I don't know how courts are going to deal with these things, because again, we've just never seen a situation like this before, and I'm I'm very very concerned about the long term outlook, even when things do get back to normal, mm-hmm. what that new normal will will look like from an employment perspective. This is so dramatic, uh, the impact, the economic impact from this that, I mean, I, I can see if a, if a, if someone was to take their employer to court over, you know, the amount of their severance, I mean, 
I, I can see it being hard to convince a judge to say, you know, this company has been hit incredibly hard as a result of COVID-19. You know, they gave the employee, mm-hmm. in your example, nine months. They would like to give more maybe. Uh, but, you know, everyone is aware of what has just happened and what is what the impact has been of COVID-19. So it would be difficult for a judge, I feel like, I mean, at my sort of newbie kind of legal mind, um, to, to, to side with the employee. Because, I mean, everyone's aware. It's, it's like everyone's hurt. You'd have to make a very strong case that the employer is sort of hoarding money or has it to, to, to spend to, or to give to that employee. Well, yeah. And I mean, the further further complication is one of the considerations um, that, that that particular judge would be looking at, and, and this is arguably the most significant consideration and significant question that the courts are, are, are looking at in terms of analyzing these, these claims, is how long is it going to take this employee to find comparable employment? Right. That's really the main question. And I don't know. I don't even know how the courts are going to address that particular question in these circumstances. So under normal circumstances, we might be able to say that, you know, our 30 year employee who's, you know, over the age of 60, that, hey, it it might take that individual 24 months to find comparable employment and again you know comparable being something similar in approximation to to whatever role they were they were in before so you know similar hours similar rate of pay similar title similar position um but these aren't going to be normal circumstances so you know if i'm representing that employee i'm going to be arguing well your honor you know um not only would my client typically be entitled to 24 months, but obviously in this climate, there are no employers that are hiring right now. What is my client going to do in terms of finding new work? I mean, in this in this climate, there is no work. There is no work to be had. Everybody's laying off. It could be years before this individual is in a position to be able to, to re-employ. And then you look at from the court's perspective, well, you know, what's their response to that? Are they going to place that burden on that particular employer to say, well, in a COVID-19 climate, it, it could be, you know, years before this individual can find comparable employment. And therefore, we're going to take that into consideration in terms of how much pay we believe that they're entitled to. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know who you place the onus on or, yeah. you know, or do you just write it off and say, well, yeah, under normal circumstances, they might be entitled to this, but we can't really hold the employer responsible because the employer isn't responsible for, for the COVID-19 outbreak. I, I mean, and nobody knows. We can, we can sort of guess, but really we won't, we won't know until we start seeing the decisions that, that come from the courts when this is all said and done. Yeah, it's a case where there, there are two victims here. I mean, obviously the employee who loses his or her job, but the employer is a victim as well, you know, as a result of COVID-19. So how do you, how do you make one or the other responsible, you know, when that relationship between the employer employee falls or or, or is or is uh, terminated um yeah well that's just it yeah, yeah. <laughs> and i mean the other thing I, I wanted to to ask you though like i i mean this is obviously difficult for most businesses and i think if if you had a you know an employee who you know tended to cause trouble or their production you know their their output uh you know has been reduced or or whatever it might be they're not your favorite em- employee anymore um, this provides mm-hmm. great overhead to let some people go because who's going to argue? I mean, you just have to say, look, our business is suffering. It's COVID-19. You know, we had to let these these employees go. And it seems like the justification is just built in for employers to kind of do whatever they want. 
Yeah. Well, look, I mean, and again, this take take this with a bit of grain of salt because this depends on the on the jurisdiction that you're you're looking at being, a, you know, a province, particular province in Ontario or in Canada, rather, or, you know, a particular state in the U.S. I mean, the the labor and employment legislation is unique to each individual jurisdiction. I mean, I, I can tell you specifically in the province of Ontario um, that you know, an employer can terminate an employee for any reason or no reason whatsoever um, at any time, provided that termination isn't discriminatory in nature. So, and when I say discriminatory, I specifically mean a prohibited ground of discrimination under the Ontario Human Rights Code. So you can't terminate somebody because they're black or because they're gay um, or some other clear prohibited ground of, of discrimination, age, gender. Um, these these sorts of issues. But outside of that, I mean, an employer can terminate an employee for any reason, provided they give them reasonable notice of that termination. And that's sort of where we get back to what I was what I was mentioning earlier, that, yeah, these employers can turn around and say, you know what, post COVID-19, there is no work. We're sorry, we have to let you go. And they can do that. um, But they have to provide that employee with reasonable notice of the termination of their employment or pay in lieu thereof. So that's when we get back to our, you know, our, our, our 60 plus um, old worker who's been with the company for, for 30 years. I, I mean, an individual look like that under typical circumstances is probably looking at, you know, 24 months pay. Well, how's the employer going to pay them 24 months salary if they're laying off 50, 100 people, depending on the size of the company? I mean, paying what those, those employees what they're owed under the law could bankrupt the company. So, I mean, how are the courts going to deal with that? Mm-hmm. You know, it was Bernie Sanders, bless his soul, when he was still running for president over a week ago. Uh, yeah. When uh, you right. know he he talked about on on the Bill Maher show, just um, you know, about the societal breakdown that could potentially happen. You know, if forty million people lose their jobs, and I mean, when when we start going into these issues, and I'm sort of hearing you talk about what some of the implications are. Um, I mean, this is it is dire. I mean, there there is the potential here for some really serious problems and um you know and i I do feel like people are not fully maybe aware of the magnitude of how bad this could get because i mean even the stock market which we talked about but uh, like life is kind of continuing while people are sort of just waiting to restart again but we don't know when that's going to be and when things do restart i mean it's not like everything's going to come back and the longer that this goes on you know, the, the, the greater likelihood that maybe a lot of it won't come back. Maybe we're just really deep in a hole and it's going to take quite a long time to get out of it. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. This is not, you know, I think people are sort of looking at it somewhat myopically in terms of when are we going to go back to work? Right. When when is the government going to say it's safe for us to come out of our homes? Well, that's sort of one part of it. But that's that's you know, that that that's a very, very small piece of of a much larger puzzle, because what are those long term implications going to be? How are businesses going to survive when all is said and done and they do get back to sort of businesses, business as usual? I mean, if there are rounds and rounds of mass layoffs, which I think is really it, it's an inevitable. And again, I commend governments around the world. I've been reading about lots of really, really interesting initiatives by governments to try 
and prop up businesses effectively and to provide wage subsidies to employees and wage subsidies to employers to ensure that they don't have to lay off as many individuals. But inevitably, those those services are going to end. And then what happens when, you know, when an employer is no longer being paid, you know, more than two thirds of a, an employee's salary to keep them on the payroll, how long is it going to be before they just start letting them all go? And if everybody, if, if, if all employers start doing the same thing, then effectively this is, you know, this is akin to a bunch of people dumping a stock. I, I mean, the whole thing can collapse very, very quickly all over again. So we, we've been talking a lot about sort of the ripple effects and the, you know the different stages and different waves of COVID, but we also need to consider the different stages and different waves of this economic downturn. That just because there's sort of an initial recovery when everybody goes back, that doesn't mean that there isn't going to be a subsequent significant uh, and possibly catastrophic um, drop after everything has quote unquote gone back to normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ewan, if you can believe it, we are uh, coming up to almost an hour on this sort of episode one of this podcast experiment. Uh, and I think there's wow. a, a lot of information that you just gave, which I think is really, really pertinent to the situation we're in. Because I think a lot of people right now are are worried about their jobs. And I mean, you, you, you were right that, you know, different jurisdictions are doing different things and are, you know, instituting different programs. And there's also just different different laws in different places, um, different legal code. So, I mean, these are things that I think people, if you're not in, happen to be in the province of Ontario in Canada, uh, these are things that you should probably look into. Um, and I, I want to mention, cause we have not mentioned this yet. If anyone has a, a, a question or, uh, even a suggestion or somebody that would like to hear on the show or a topic for us to cover, uh, you can post it on, on Instagram or on Twitter or pretty much any social network with the hashtag PR law pod. So that's P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. And we will absolutely get that and we will read everything that comes in. And, uh, and we'll answer some questions if you've got them because I think, um, I think people do have a lot of questions right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know if we have time, time to get to it or at least briefly get to it, but one of the other things I, I, I wanted to sort of chat to you about was, you know, what is this going to do? And we've talked about it for the impact on labor from, you know, from a legal perspective. I mean, what about a cultural perspective? I mean, what do you think the long-term implications are going to be of the entire workforce or most of the workforce anyway, for the first time working remotely? and working from home. Now I know for, for a number of people, this, Hey, this will be business as usual. They've been running home offices or have been working remotely or they're contract workers. Um, and this is, this is sort of par for the course, but for, I think the majority people are, are, are learning to work from home offices and remotely and, and trying to balance other concerns, be it, you know, childcare because daycares or schools are closed. Um, what do you think the you know the long term cultural implications are going to be of that in terms of how we approach our our labor the way we look at labor and and our work? There are so many layers to that question. I think I mean there's, yeah, there's not a, there's not an easy answer. But I, I think you know I had uh, I had dinner last night with a couple of people who are much older than me, and who have been working from home. And I mean these are two people who are very very you know traditional. They've 
they're in their you know late fifties. Um, you know, they certainly didn't grow up with the internet uh, like a lot of people have, and you know it was notable because you know both of them said that yeah working from home is really possible it's it's convenient and actually they prefer it uh, because there's fewer distractions which is actually the opposite of what i've heard some people say but i mean in this case i mean these are two people who are you know senior executives uh, at their companies but you know there's less quick phone calls there's less people popping into their office there's less people coming to get them to sign something like all of these little things that happen throughout the day um, are not happening now. So anytime someone needs something, they schedule a time and then there's a Zoom call or there's a Microsoft Teams call or something like that. Um, so, I mean, that part is interesting. And I think, I think if you're a, a millennial and maybe even some Gen Xers like ourselves, but I mean, the, the younger generation has grown up being digitally connected. And I don't think that this is that much of a shock for them because they have grown up with this. I mean, they, they, they live their lives online for the most part. But I do think where the, the change is happening is with sort of, yeah, the Gen Xers and older, where, you know, they do remember a time when the internet wasn't prevalent. And, you know, they, they, they're maybe not as conversant with some of the digital tools that people use um, for productivity in the workplace. And I think for that group in particular, I think it's been a bit of a revelation. And I do think that there are permanent changes happening as a result of this, because, you know, the world is kind of still running in a lot of ways with people working from home and it's not, it's not a challenge for a lot of people. <laughs> like it's, it's uh, I mean, I can tell you for me, I mean, I, I started a new job actually over, over this, this period. And I mean, <clears throat> I've been working from home. So, I mean, a lot of my colleagues, a lot of the people that I work with, I haven't even met, you know, in person. Um, right, but, right. you know, it's, it's, it's been fine though. Like, I feel like I know them well, we're, we're talking all the time We're we're constantly connected and we're getting a lot of work done. And I, I feel like I, I'm more productive at home, in fact. And I, I mean, I don't have kids. So I think that, you know, brings another level of complexity to this. But for someone in my position, it, I am much more focused and I'm much more productive because I'm sort of in my own space and I can control the things that are happening around me uh, and just get more done. And, yeah, the tools have come a long way as well. Okay. I mean, but do you find, I mean, one of, one of the complaints I've heard, and, and this is from, from individuals who work at least something uh, approximating more of a traditional nine to five. And, and let's be honest, I mean, those, those positions are, are becoming more and more rare. Um, but, but their argument, which is kind of interesting, particularly as to hear as a lawyer, because effectively my, you know, my day, it doesn't really end. I mean, I'm sort of receiving emails around the clock from different clients and, and, you know, and there's sort of an expectation that I will respond to those emails, if not um, immediately, at least within sort of a, within a 12 to 24 hour timeline. But what I'm hearing from a lot of individuals who work those more traditional sort of nine to five roles, again, whatever, whatever they may be, um, they've really been struggling with this because they're saying, you know, I, I get up and I, I have emails, I'm going to bed and I have emails and it's like, there's no clear beginning or end to my work day. It just sort of goes on and on and on and all the days are blurring, are blurring together. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I think there's also a generational issue there as well that you, that you sort of raised where, you know, for a millennial, look, I mean, to your, to your point, it's difficult for them to imagine uh, a, a period or a life without high-speed internet, but for, for Gen Xers or, or for boomers, this has to be, you know, use the word a revelation. I'm sure it is 
is. But I mean, you know, revelation for me sort of suggests positive connotations. I just I, I question whether or not it has been a positive for um, a lot of older workers who are exploring this sort of digital medium in a way that they've never had to before. Yeah, I think you're probably right on that. Um, you know, I mean, the jobs that you and I are working in are demanding. And, you know, I, I throw, like we're, we're, we're going through an Easter long weekend here. I mean, it is still a holiday in Hong Kong from our British colonial days. But I mean, the Friday, um, which was a holiday, I mean, the company I work for maintained the, the weekly meeting that day anyway. Um, and mm-hmm. I was on calls from 8 a.m. until almost 4 in the afternoon. And that's on a holiday. So like, mm-hmm. I, I don't enjoy that necessarily. Um, I recognize that that is going to happen sometimes when there are issues. But I do, and I've said this to others, you really are in control of your own time. And I think the worst thing that people can do is sort of, sort of bend with the breeze whichever way it goes and just sort of put their hands in the air and say, okay, I'll just you know, work when someone emails and I'll just you know, lose control of this. I do think people do need to set times. I think they do need to schedule breaks. I think um, they have to sort of be more, more mindful and more proactive about what they're willing to do. And, you know, mm-hmm. there are little hacks around this. I mean, you, you can block off time where you're just not going to have a call or you're not going to um, look at email. And even if you do have a peek at email, that's fine. But don't let other people know you are if you're blocking that, that off. Because it is necessary. If, if you don't assert yourself in these situations, it will get out of control very quickly. And, you know, there are some tools. I mean, I know several people now who don't like emailing uh, work emails in the evening. I mean, sending emails to someone else because especially with a client, it creates an expectation that you're always available at all times. And sometimes sure. some, somebody sees an email, it's a quick response. You know, they check it at 1am before they go to sleep. Um, but if they, if they do do that quick response, it does set that expectation. So, you know, there are little tools for instance, that will let you write the email and press send and it'll wait until nine o'clock the next morning um, before it goes out. I mean, so there's, there's little ways around it like that, but it, it's especially for the boomers. Uh, it's just so unfamiliar to what they know, especially if they've, you know, didn't have their work email on their phone or, or things like that. It, it's going to be a challenge. And I think, you know, just age as well. I mean, these are digital tools and a lot of people aren't familiar with how they work or what the methodology is behind them. So I certainly have yeah, sympathy abs- for that. Well, absolutely. I think all of your, all of those tips are actually, I mean, they're, they're fantastic. And I think, you know, the, the idea that structure is key here. Um, but, but to your point, and I, and I think that that's sort of where my concern lies for a lot of older employees, they will not be familiar with any of these, uh, structured tools in some cases. Um, and where are they, where are they getting their information? I mean, I, I, I question that they're, you know, on websites looking at productivity software or reading tutorials on how to manage, you know, a, a digital work day. Uh, and perhaps they, perhaps they should be, but I, but I think we can probably assume that they aren't. Um, and that sort of leads me to, to question what are the long-term implications of that going to be. I mean, I think hopefully in some cases there will be this complete restructuring of how work is 
distributed, how work is performed when everybody returns to their offices. I, I do think that this is finally and hopefully an opportunity for millennials to really, really capitalize and really, really get ahead. Because as you and I have talked about many, many times before, I feel as though the millennials are always sort of getting the short end of the stick, particularly in the workforce. I mean, um, they were sort of just coming into the into the workplace, I guess, in about, you know, post the 2008, 2009 financial crisis. And now they're having to endure this. Um, they haven't really had very much go their way in terms of in terms of the labor market. But I think this is an excellent opportunity for them to sort of step up and utilize that skill set that's inherent because of when they were by, by nature of when they were born and the fact that they have a familiarity with a lot of this tech in a way that the older generations don't. And I think it's a great, and I hope it, 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 it ends up being a great opportunity for them to step up and excel in a way that they haven't had an opportunity to do so before. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge chance for them. Um, with the older workers and we are running out of time here cause we do want to try and keep it to an hour folks. Uh, we do have a lot of, we actually have a lot of things to go over, but we can uh, hold some for next week. Um, what I was going to say is um, for some of the older workers, it, it is they do have a bit of an obligation to investigate these things or be open to learning. And I think I think mm. there, it is a, it is a sort of a two pronged strategy because, I mean, they need to be helped. I do think that there are a lot of people out there that just they're not familiar with computers and they're not comfortable with them and they're intimidated by them. And, um, you know, some of these things are just not second nature the way they are to millennials or, or others. Um, so there needs to be some sort of institutional support. That's very important. But I do think the other side of it is a genuine desire to want to learn. Because, you know, I have come across cases <laughs> where, you know, it's sort of some of these things are seen as things that, you know, they don't need to think about it. They don't need to worry about it. They don't care. They've been doing, they've been doing this job, you know, the same way for X number of years. And it's been fine. And why do they need to change now? You know, and things like that. And that, that is the wrong attitude to have. And I know that sounds... Difficult. I mean, if someone is a professional and they're in their fifties or sixties, it's it's hard to tell them that you've got to you've got to change. But but they do. This is the economy. It's I mean, it's uncomfortable, but it is kind of reality at the same by the same token. And you know, we have talked about it. I do think it's my obligation to stay on top of what happens in communications. For instance, it's my field. Um, I've talked mm -hmm. to some some senior communications people who you know aren't familiar with a CRM, for instance. And you know, in those cases, I go you know. It's not that you have to wait for someone to tell you. You should be reading. Like, you should be knowing what's going on a little bit. Um, so you, you can at least ask the questions or ask, do I need this? Or should I learn this? Or is this worthwhile? Um, not doing that puts you puts you in the, in, in the back seat a little bit and much more reliant on others. And that's not where you want to be with your career. Yeah, well, and maybe that's a good place. Maybe that's a good place to leave it. I think so. We actually, we, we really do have a lot of things to cover, and I think uh, we'll we'll get to them in the weeks ahead. Um, I do want to mention though, we we are on Twitter and we are on Facebook as well. Uh, and you know what? I can't even remember what our accounts are. I think on Twitter it's it's uh, pr law underscore pod. I think. I'm going to actually check it before I before I say these are brand new accounts, obviously, people. So that's why we're not we're not as familiar <laughs> with them. But we will post the episodes there. Um, yeah, sorry, it's uh, so it's PR Law underscore podcast. 
uh, and you will find us on Twitter. And we, we do want to get questions. If you have questions, um, you know, related to, to, to legal issues, Ewan's, you know, uh, focuses on employment law. Um, and then in my case, I mean, I'm working in, in corporate communications and PR and those sorts of things. We didn't talk about it too much this week. I did want to try and get into Zoom because they've been a bit of a case study uh, for poor corporate communications, but we can we can save that one for next week as well. Um, so yeah, send us a question, comment, suggestions. We want to have guests on the show as well. Uh, so use the hashtag PRLawPod, hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. And uh, we will read your questions and take them uh, on the air. Mm-hmm. So thank you, everybody. It's fun. Uh, I did not expect us to to actually go through this many issues. Uh, so hopefully uh, <laughs> people found it useful. And we will be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>